Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University School of Arts, who have been with us since the very beginning. It's where we learn how to make podcasts, radio, and video. So if you're interested in a creative degree in games, sound, film, journalism, or maybe you'd like to mix and match, you can head to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts to learn more about what they've got on offer. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts, or you can search Murdoch University for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Pixel Sift. It's If it's your first time joining us, we are a show that explores the stories of indie games from around Australia and the world. My co-host today is Gianni. How are you doing, man? I'm going fantastic. Thank you, Mitch. And our featured guest today is Ian McClarty. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Hi, thanks for having me again. And uh, Ian is no stranger to Pixel Sift. He last joined us last year to talk about a dissembler. But tonight, however, he is here to tell us about Jump Grid, which is completely different from his last game. But first, what are we talking about, Johnny? We're going to be talking about uh, being a solo developer. We've come across a couple of articles uh, recently, one uh, featuring the developer of a game called Iconoclasts. Um, and we'll be talking about that because Ian mostly works as a solo developer. So we'll be getting his perspective on that as well. Great. Let's get started. Mitch, what's Discord? Discord is an online chat service that most gamers use. Incidentally, you can also use it to talk to us at pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. Yeah, you can talk about uh, episodes, you can talk about upcoming topics, you can probably even coerce Mitch into playing a game with you online. That's not going to happen. That is going to happen. You're doing it. I'm saying that's happening. Sorry. Yeah, well... Join Discord. You should grow your beard back. pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. The beard's going well, Mitch. Can you see? It looks good. I've just, it's getting there. I'm just still just wondering why I still run that ad when you know I run this show pretty much now, and <laughs> I can pick the ads, and I still run the one where I talk to you. Yeah, yeah, you like talking to me. Fair yeah. enough, because I like talking to you. Well, we also talk to many different developers on this show, Mitch. If you've been following along, yes, most of them work in groups to bring their games to life, but some choose to work alone, and. We're basically, basically, we saw an article that's recently come out. It was written by Brendan Sinclair, written on uh, the website gameindustry.biz. He was, the article is called Tearing Down the Lone Developer Myth. So it was an interview by um, Joachim Sandberg, who was the developer of Iconoclast, which is kind of like a Metrovania, Metroidvania-style game. Um, and famously, he, he worked on that game for a, a very long time by themselves. Uh, um, there was... I think it was like several years at at at, at a time, um, and part of the reason why um, was you know there was sort of I guess a, a maybe a, a bit of a fear perhaps of of sharing ideas. Um, uh, Joachim said, uh, "I don't know if it's selfishness, stubbornness, or being afraid of having my ideas shot down, but I haven't had too much of a desire to try working with others." Um, I did try it when I was much younger, but at that point, everyone just wants their own thing. It was just a bunch of arguments, so I haven't tried it since. Um, so we would. Thinking about talking about this in particular because we have Ian on uh, this week, and Ian, who joined us before, mostly works by by yourself, don't you, Ian? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I do I do most of the design and programming and stuff myself. Um, I do, I mean, I do get help in terms of um, I've had people make music for my games. Um, my wife is a graphic designer, Bethany. She 
um, often contributes some art to the games and stuff like that. But it's mostly, um, certainly from design-wise and programming-wise and most of the graphics and sound effects and things, it's solo. So why do you lean into to that sort of mode? Um, you know, you're based over in Melbourne. There's plenty of really talented game developers there you could, could work for. Why is it that you like to kind of mostly work by yourself? Um, well, um, uh, so there's two aspects there. Uh, one is, you know, I could be working for someone else, mm-hmm. uh, making someone else's game. Um, uh, I guess it doesn't really feel that appealing to me because, like, um, I kind of want to make my own games. Um, I have ideas from games I want to make and I want to make them. And then the other aspect is why I don't, um, work with other people to to make those games that I want to make. Um, and I, I have actually worked with other people before. I, a friend of mine, John Kearney, mm-hmm. we worked together to make um, a game called Boson X, um, which I released in 2013. Um, but mostly um, other games have been solo. And I think it's um, – I think, I mean – You, know, you work on set, quite a lot of games, yeah. though. Is that right? Like you, yeah, you... all of them are really just small things. I mean, mm. you know, small free things that have taken a month or so. So it doesn't really make sense to bring people on board for that. But um, I mean, in terms of like this, this whole lot of different sort of like sort of uh, a range of kind of um, how many people are working on a project. You know, I mean, you could be just one main person, and you bring up maybe a couple of people contractors in just for a bit of music or. Um, or, or you can ramp up to a studio where you actually set up a company. And for me, that level is just like, it just seems really stressful and like mm-hmm. a lot of risk, um, like just all the admin and, and sort of managing that and having to be responsible for paying people um, just seems really stressful and and risky, um, which is why I kind of not really interested in, in going that way. It's interesting because Sandberg um, says that, you know, there is some, I guess, some downsides to, to working in that particular way um, that, you know, if you are working by yourself, um, you, you kind of have no one to sort of bounce the ideas from. Um, yeah, think, yeah. Do you agree I, with that? Well, not really because I think that article uh, conflates like the idea of working solo with working in isolation and I think mm. they're different things. So I, I work solo, but I but I don't work in isolation. I, I feel I'm part of quite a vibrant community in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people I can bounce ideas off. A lot of people I can show work in progress to, um, you know. And so I don't feel like I'm working in isolation, even though I'm, you know, working most of the time on my own. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities for playtesting things I like get. So I think. You know, working in isolation can have a lot of problems. Um, and certainly working solo, you know, in terms of, you know, you're not going to make really big games. But um, mm. but I think the, 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 the issues that he's talking about there are more problems with working in isolation. Mm. Um, is, is there any traps or anything you would suggest if someone was working on a project on their own, seeing as you've, you know, delivered a number of games now? Um, is it just a scale or a scope? question or, or is it there are other traps that you can sort of notice you mentioned a little bit about isolation there as well but anything else yeah i i think i mean not working in isolation so um 
putting sort of putting versions of your game out there, you know, whether they be just prototypes, um, not being afraid of people stealing your ideas. I think it's more important to sort of get a, an idea of whether people are going to like the game or mm. whether there's going to be an audience for it. Um, if you're just joining mm. us on Twitch, uh, we are talking to Ian McClarty and uh, the current topic we are discussing is solo development and what exactly that means uh, in the whole process of creating a game. Um, I was going to ask, Ian, so uh, would you consider working with more or expanding your team outwardly at any point? And uh, what would what would convince you to probably do that in the future? Um, no, not in a big way. Um, I, uh, John and I do want to do another game, um, so we've been talking about that. Um, but he's a, a personal friend of mine. I don't. I, don't I, I feel like it would. I mean, I've I've kind of worked in companies for most of my life, um, and that's fine. But I feel like part of what I enjoy about making games is that I'm sort of doing it. Uh, you know, I'm just working at home, and I'm. It's I can sort of set my own schedule and stuff. So I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think anything could really convince me to sort of scale up. Um, unless maybe I had a big hit, and it needed like it needed people to work on it to maintain it. Maybe mm. you know, and I had the money. But um, I don't think anything would convince me to scale up. You know, because I, I'm very risk averse. So. Mm. I just, um, it'd be too scary, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you'd yeah, have to borrow sure. money to like, you'd have to get investors and then all the kind of like, all the the sort of people skills you have to have just to like, you basically, most of your job would be just talking to other people, you know, to try and get them to like, get on board with your thing, trying to get people <laughs> interested and invested in it. And it would be like, I feel like I wouldn't really be making the game anymore. I'd just be like, managing it you know um which is not it doesn't sound that fun to me um i guess is there by working by yourself if if a project doesn't go the way you want it to go or it's you're not feeling it anymore the only person you have to answer to is just yourself as well is that is that a factor too yes um yes but i mean um yeah definitely definitely so um, there's, I mean, there's also other factors that come into it that are not just personal fulfillment, you know, like, mm. you know, I want to, I want to release something that's going to have some appeal that's going to generate an income for me. Um, but, um, it is, it is a lot easier to be able to say, okay, I don't really think this is working. I'm going to try something else or whatever without having to explain that to anyone else, you know? or without having to convince other stakeholders. Well, it's definitely an interesting read. You can have a look at the full article from from Brian Sinclair. We'll have a link to that in the the show notes for this particular episode. If you've got any comments about why, you know, the different games or perspectives, you can always discuss that with us as well. Um, right now, I think we should have a, have a chat to Ian and find out about the game he's been working on mostly by himself. It's called Jump Grid. Visit us on pixelsift.com.au. All right, tonight we are joined by Ian McLarty, and he is here to talk about his game, Jump Grid, which is almost completely different from the last game that he was last here to talk about back in episode 96 of Pixel Sift. So, Ian, can you give us a quick summary of Jump Grid for people who aren't in the know? 
Um, sure. So it's a um, it's a minimalist action game. Um, you control a little vessel of um, sort of abstract vessel that you're moving around the screen, and this vessel only exists at designated points on the screen, um, which form a grid. So typically a three by three grid, although some of the later levels have bigger grids. And you essentially can teleport between points on that grid. And it's a bit like Pac-Man because you have to collect these little gems at each of the points. And then once you've done that, a portal opens to the, to the next level in the middle. And once you enter that, you go to the next level. Um, and the challenge comes is these abstract shapes moving around um, and you've got to avoid them while collecting all the gems. Um, and the trick is that you can, because you're teleporting, you can you can jump over the, the obstacles and you can also wrap around the screen like in Pac-Man. So if you're at the top and you jump up, you'll end up at the bottom. Um, so you can reach any any other point on the screen with just two jumps. Um, so it's all about sort of being aware of where all the openings are and then um, uh, planning your moves appropriately. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it, it feels a lot like a memory game, I think, to play because you, the, the levels are, are all fixed animations and they're quite fast. Mm. And you'll get hit by the ob objects really a lot, but it starts almost immediately. So it's not really supposed to be a penalty. It's just sort of, um, you sort of, it, you sort of learn by repetition. Mm. Um, and then you kind of develop a sense of, of where to go and the timings. And then, and I kind of wanted it to be, the levels to be really, really short, mm. um, but really kind of, Sort of give you enough friction so they feel um, compelling and kind of moorish, um, but then you you know you, there's not too much friction, so you're always sort of making progress, right? And one thing I like about it is because there's there's only eight little gems you have to collect, and so it's only there's only really like sort of nine moves you have to do, you know, collect the gems and then go back to the middle. Um, so you always feel like you're just almost there, you know. There's only a few more gems you have to collect, uh, so. I wanted it to be sort of compelling in that way, so you always feel like you're almost there. How do you balance that? Uh, um, How do you make it so it's compelling enough but not punishing enough so that people don't bounce off it really quickly? Mainly playtesting. Mm. So I took it to um, I took it to PAX Australia. I took it to Acme had a, a playtesting day. I took it to that. I showed it at um, Bar SK in Melbourne, which is a, an exhibition space slash bar. Um, and they have sort of work in progress nights. Um, I took it to the local um, RGDA uh, meetups in Melbourne um, to to show it there. And basically, it was just you know watching people play it and seeing how if they get stuck. And there were certain levels people would get stuck, and then I would change them a bit. And um, so yeah, it mostly just playing also and also playing it myself. You know, if there was a new level and I'd play it and. I'd, if it just felt too too frustrating to me, then I would change it to make it less frustrating. We've got a question from uh, Burnsy1997. Um, he, he's, uh, he, they say, uh, my inner masochist is too keen for this game, but 
they want to know how do you develop the level patterns as far as balancing that difficulty while also maintaining that creative visual element? Uh, well, like, so the, the, the process for making the levels is like um, varies between levels, but often there would just be like a nice, cool shape or kind of animation that I wanted to do. So I think that is maybe why some of them look like visually striking because, you know, I just wanted to sort of have this visual element in there. And then I'd put it in and then it was maybe too easy or too hard or something. And then I would tweak it until it sort of felt pleasant for me to play. And um, one sort of check I had was that I should be able to get through the level with, in, in quotes, reasonably comfortable um, sequence of, of button presses. So, you know, I guess probably about like 0.1 or 0.2 seconds between each key press. So it's like reasonably comfortable. Um, so you can, you know, just be really fast and, and do the level faster if you find a better route. But there is always a route that you can do it in without having to be, you know, ridiculously fast on the keyboard. Um, now this is, I guess, quite a stark contrast to your previous game, Dissembler, which was almost as slow as you want to take it, really. You could just take your time as you go through it. What is it, uh, you know, why did you want to make this fast action game and, and, and in contrast to that other game? Um, so I'll answer, that, uh, I'll answer that question, but then I'll also, like, disagree with that assertion because mm. I think there's a lot of similarities between them. Right. Um, so um, the reason I wanted to make this game is that i mean I, I do enjoy games like super hexagon and a big inspiration for this well certainly the way the levels restart and the level structure was um fly wrench i don't know if you've played that um, no. uh, but i have played super hexagon and i know that sort of repeating pattern and yeah so mm. um I, you know i just find that kind of like i think I, i'm not really like typically a fan of really hard games but i think if they if they if they if they reset really quickly and sort of throw you back in really quickly and if it's about more learning each time you fail and there's a really quick loop you know each time you fail then i think they can be quite um it can be really satisfying to sort of develop that muscle memory to play them um so i've always been interested in those kind of games and, and both on x was a kind of very much that style of game um and the design for this game actually was came about before I even started before I had the idea for Dissembler. Um and it was something that I just wanted to to finish up basically. So so that was kind of why I did it now is because I kind of had this game in my in my queue of things I wanted to to do and I kind of made a rough prototype and put it in a, a game jam. And people seem to like it quite a lot, so I thought maybe there's something there. And so the the other part, but I also think that this game is very similar to December in a lot of ways. Like it's one of the few level-based games that I've made, and December was a level-based game, so mm-hmm. a set of discrete levels that you work your way through. Um, it's They're both kind of quite, at their core, really simple games. You know, the mm-hmm. rules are really simple. Um, so they're kind of, you know, taking a really simple idea, but then trying to 
design something interesting around it. So I think they're both very design focused and, and, they, and they kind of get their character from their levels. Um, so I feel like the, they, the, the process of making those games is very similar. You know, most of the time I'd just be designing new levels. That's what I was doing. Um, so, um, and I haven't, like, you know, a lot of my other games are not really about that. They're more sort of just procedure generated or um, they're just, you know, they're not about making levels. So mm. um, Is there, for there me, was that... it felt like a similar process to Dissembler. When we spoke about December the last time you were on the show, you said they're both grid-based as well. They um, it was uh, all handmade, uh, and except there was like an auto-generated mode as well. Now, is there any aspect of that in Jump Grid, or is, are they all handmade levels? No, they're all handmade this time. Um, mm. I think auto-generating these kind of levels is a bit trickier. Mm. Um, yeah. All right, so if you're just joining us um, on Twitch or YouTube or wherever it is you're watching us from, uh, we are Pixel Sift, and we are speaking to Ian McClarty, the developer of Jump Grid, uh, the kind of fast-paced puzzle shape-avoiding uh, game. So, um, Ian, there's another question from the chat uh, from Burnsy again. Um, how difficult was a game like this to program? Um, uh, it wasn't too hard, and I mean, that sort of collision detection is not that difficult um you know especially 2d collision detection but i think um there were a lot of really interesting problems unexpected problems that came up Mm. um around collisions um and hopefully not getting too technical but things like for example often in in games like this you want you want the collisions to feel more forgiving um to be a bit forgiving Mm-hmm. So, for example, what I wanted was I wanted there to be a little bit of time, give you a bit of a bit of a um, a little oh. window when something hits you for you to jump just after it's hit you, right? So maybe like point one of a second, right? And that 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 just makes it like feel get it better, and sort of makes it feel like you have a lot more like near misses. But it introduces all these weird problems like in a game that are very specific to this game. So, for example, if you allow that, sort of a little window where, you know, you can jump for, say, 0.1 seconds after something's hit you, then you can do things like you can jump to a block that's, you know, completely obscuring a part of the screen and then quickly jump out of it again. And and that just feels, like, wrong. It feels, like, broken. Jumping and it's not something that happens blocks. in other games because you can't normally teleport around like that instantly. Um, so, yeah, so there were interesting problems I got and, and um, this stopped me from getting too technical. No, that's <laughs> but, good. Um, the way I kind of got around it, and I was quite sort of, I, I realized this really late on, um, is that because this game, you can only exist at these predetermined points on the screen, and because the animations for each level are fixed, I can actually just pre-compute all the collisions, right? I just pre-compute all the collisions at all the nine points on the screen. And then I just have these windows. So basically all I have while the game's running is it, is it knows that between this time and this time, this point is covered, right? Um, and it knows that for all the nine points. Mm. So... Um, 
So just as these little time windows of when each point is covered. And then I can do cool things like I can actually contract or expand those time windows a bit to make it a bit more forgiving, but never contract them to zero so that, you know, things will never like, um, you know, you never, you never, uh, you know, something's moving Being really quickly. It will never just go through you, for example. Mm. You know? So, um, yeah, and, and that's not really hard to program as such, but it was um, a bit of a bit of in sort of a a leap to kind of come up with that idea, I guess. So, but, do you kind of come at the problem from the opposite direction rather than trying to give people invulnerability for a certain amount of time? You make the kill timer shorter. Is that um, the way to think about it? Sort of, not really. It's it's you mm. you you're still you're still making. Um, um, you're, you're you're sort of giving people that little bit of a window when mm. something is covering them to move out of the way, but it avoids a lot of the pitfalls of that. Um, for example, you know, jumping onto really quickly jumping onto an area that's completely covered and then jumping off it—that doesn't work in this mm. in this solution. So, um, but yeah, just there were just uh, I guess the point I'm making is there were a lot of little technical things like that that you wouldn't expect with a game like this that have been solved for games that have more traditional collision or more traditional movement where you're moving continuously because this movement is very discreet and you you can teleport instantly anywhere. Um, it sort of, even though it kind of seems like it should be simpler, it actually ended up being, uh, there were some interesting problems that came out of it that I didn't expect. And, uh, so one final question uh, before we end. Uh, Fiona, our producer, asks, is the game going to be out on Switch? Um, probably not. Um, like, it hasn't really sold that well on Steam. Uh, I'm going to put it on the iPhone, and I think it might do a bit better there. Um, well, we'll see. Um, but I don't really have, like, the enough numbers to justify kind of putting the effort into putting the switch. I mean, it would be nice, but I just don't really, I have no idea, like just, you know, economically, like, um, you know, if it's not done that well on steam, I, you know, I can't really justify spending the time mm. doing it for switch. So. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us Ian. Um, we'll definitely be putting all the links to your work and uh, Dissembler and Jump Grid uh, in the description of this podcast episode. And uh, mm-hmm. thank you very much for the, to the audience for joining us for another episode of Pixel Sift um, on this uh, episode uh, 115. And uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this episode was hosted by myself, Mitchell Lowe, and Gianni DiGiovanni, and was produced by Scott Quigg, Fiona Bartholomeus, and our executive producer is uh, Gianni. Uh, thank it's you me. very much. Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much to Murdoch University once again, uh, the School of Arts, for supporting Pixel Sieved through all these episodes. If you'd like to learn more about a great creative degree, go to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. And um, as always, we'll be sticking all the links to the things we talked about at on our website, uh, www.pixelsieved.com.au. And the absolute best thing you can do is head to the pixelsieved.com.au forward slash discord our discord is at that uh, link um if you want to keep up with everything we're doing because we post everything there first 
Um, and uh, we also have other social media p- pages too. Just search Pixel Civ and all your favorite ones. We pop up, yellow icon, Sift logo. It's very cute. Um, Gianni, if people want to listen to other episodes of the show, where should they go? Yeah, so if you want to listen to the other episode, for example, that Ian was on, so that's episode nine. You can go to our website. You can just search for uh, Dissembler or Ian McClarty. You can go onto your podcast player of choice. That's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, whatever you like. Um, and when you're there, if you give us a rating or review or even just tell a friend uh, if you like the show, that would be phenomenal. Excellent. And we're live every Thursday in one way or another. But next, uh, our next episode will be on the 7th of March. But next week, this time, you can join us for Pixelsive Plays. We play some indie games that we featured on this podcast. All right. Catch you later. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Bye.